Amen. Praise God for a beautiful song of worship that I hope melts your heart into giving worship to God. When we really begin to grasp God, we begin to worship Him, don't we? We really begin to sense His majesty. I remember years ago being all by myself in the backcountry in the North Dakota Badlands, just doing a little bit of a hike on a beautiful autumn, autumn afternoon and looking around at the beauty around me and just finding myself so just overwhelmed at nature, but more than that, just a sense of God's presence with me. And I did something I'd never done before. I felt almost a tinge of embarrassment for just a second, and then I got over it really quick. I shouted to the Lord. I did. And I thought, that's in the Psalms, so I think that's okay. I just shouted to the Lord. I said, glory to God. You know, when you're alive to the Lord and awake to his presence in your life, his care for you, when you're focusing on him, you begin to sense him. You begin to perceive him with your senses. I hope that you open your heart to that kind of encounter here when you come to church, but don't limit it to here. Encounter him wherever you are. Of course, in the word of God, but in the beauty of creation, in the privacy of uh, your, your own moments with him, in the car as you drive, he's, he's always around us, he's near us, he's within us through his spirit. And so today I want to encourage you to encounter him in prayer. As we think about this subject, it comes to mind because we're looking at a piece of scripture, a section of scripture that is a prayer, and it's in Ephesians chapter 3. I printed for you that prayer, it's on the back side of your, uh, your outline today, those words from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian Christians, but they're relevant to us because he was writing to people who are in Christ. Most of us here today would say, well, I'm in Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. These would be words for you then as well, not just for people who lived a long time ago in a place far, far away. So it's relevant. It's pertinent. It's as up-to-date as the cold weather is outside. It's up-to-date. It's relevant. This word from long ago. It's also for today. It's for every day. Before we come to it today, I don't have to remind you of this, but I will anyway. It's almost turkey time. Now, most of you here today are probably carnivores, huh? at least at some level. We did something for our staff this year. We, we, we gifted people turkeys. And you know, I don't make it my business to know what everybody's personal appetites are. I didn't know if everybody on staff, I didn't know if I had any staff members here that were vegans. And I walked up to one of the staff persons before I gifted this turkey, and I said, uh, uh, do you guys eat meat? Are, are you vegans? And this person's reply to me, that would be horrible. <laughs> In other words, what do you got? So how about a turkey? Oh, that would be wonderful. So uh, at any rate, uh, we're all thinking about turkeys these times. I'm sorry, I'm out of birds. I don't have a bird for you. But I think they're on sale, so you can go get one. It's almost turkey time. It's the time when we sit down, we give thanks, and then we ask for forgiveness for eating too much, right? Uh, I know many of us are tempted at turkey time to have a little too much. And isn't the crazy thing about Thanksgiving Day is that we stuff ourselves with the turkey and dressing and all the goodies, and we say, I couldn't eat another bite. And then what typically happens, at least to most of us, a few hours later, we're back in the kitchen grousing around. Yeah, we're looking for the leftovers. When we, we, we could barely pull ourselves away from the table, but we're coming back to it just a little while later. So uh, we, we enjoy it. The holidays aren't far now. They're, they're upon us. And I know that most of us here today aren't 
living for the holiday season. You didn't wait all year for the next few weeks. I don't think you did. But I do ask you to think about something that I, really a question I posed last week. What are you living for? I know it's not the holidays. Uh, That's just a lead-in for my message today. What's the big cause that your life is about? That's a big question to ask. It's an important one. I had a funeral service this weekend. In fact, I've had such a busy weekend. The whole staff has. Uh, Pastor Barry had an off-site wedding, and I had a, a wedding renewal ceremony, and I had a funeral, and I had a few other things. By the time I'm done today, I will have had, had about eight or nine different speaking things. So uh, I hope I get a nap today. I hope. But at any rate, I had a funeral service yesterday, and I ended that service with these words. How fragile, how vulnerable we humans are It takes but a moment for life to end and for eternity to begin. That's true, isn't it? We don't have to think about that one too long. We know it's true. Ask the people of Sutherland Springs, Texas, if that's true. How fragile, how vulnerable we humans are. It takes but a moment for life to end and for eternity to begin. And because that's true, it's important to live daily life in the best way possible to redeem the day that you have today, to think carefully about what you're giving your your mind to, your, your will to, your heart to. With that truth in view, as the holidays approach, and we think about giving gifts of good cheer, and we think about Thanksgiving, and all of the stuff, all of the trappings of the holidays, let me tell you what you're really hungry for. It's none of that stuff. What you and I are really hungry for is more of Christ. That's what your soul really wants. Your soul wants to grow. Your soul wants to be larger than it is right now in its relationship to the God who made it. That's a big statement, but I mean it. And I believe the Apostle Paul's words are going to help you see that very clearly today. God wants not your stomach to grow, but your soul. The late Robert Mulholland said this. He said, Often people have the idea that the image of Christ is something alien to human beings, something strange that God wants to add on to our life, something imposed on us from outside that doesn't really fit us. In reality, however, the image of Christ is the fulfillment of the deepest hungers of the human heart for wholeness. The greatest thirst of our being is for fulfillment in Christ's image. That's a loaded and powerful statement. We are most fully alive, he's saying, when we are most alive in Christ, in our faith, when we're most alive in Jesus Christ, when we're walking uh, alone somewhere in the hills of, of a beautiful creation and we're recognizing that God who made us is near us and he's wonderful and he's real and we're saying glory to God. We are most alive in those moments. We're most fulfilled in those moments. And nothing else really comes close to fulfilling us. There's a deep hunger in each of us to relate to our Creator in that kind of a wonderful way. To not just have knowledge of Him, but to, but to truly know Him. Experiential kind of knowledge, right? As Trish and I have had to watch our older children move off to college You know, we still have great knowledge of them because they lived with us for years, for two decades, but we don't know them at the same level we once did. We miss that intimacy. 
We look forward to connecting, and yet when we do visit, it's just, it's just reconnecting. It's just realigning. You know, what are you doing? What's the, what's, what's the latest? You know what that's like, right? When somebody dear near to you moves away, you spend the, the time you do have just kind of catching up. You're playing catch up. You still have knowledge of each other, but it's not the knowing that it once was of the everyday kind of comings and goings and what's really going on in each other's lives. You know, as a Christian, you can go through your life with a, a ton of knowledge, keep learning more knowledge about God through the Awana verses you learned as a kid or what you're learning in a good Bible study or a small group, and it's all good. It's wonderful, but it can just kind of be static knowledge that just kind of sits out there. If we're not careful, it just sits there. We need to be mindful that we're to enter into knowing that God, not just knowing about him. You see the difference? That there's a, There is a, a line there that can, can easily be formed, and we can become content with just knowing about rather than knowing him. And there are worlds of difference between those two, worlds of difference between knowing about your God and really knowing him more deeply, more intimately. And I want you to see something here in the prayers of the Apostle Paul that he gives. He beckons us to, to go deeper than just knowing about God, but to truly experiencing the truths about him that we know are true, the things about him that we, we know are true. If you'd go back to, with me to chapter 1 of Ephesians, if your Bible is already open to that, I will show you in his first prayer what I mean. I'll first complete Robert Mulholland's statement. He said, The most profound yearning of the human spirit, which we try to fill with all sorts of inadequate substitutes, is the yearning for our completeness in the image of Christ. The God who made you wants to continually fill you. You might say, well, don't I already possess the Holy Spirit of God if I'm a Christian? Yes, you do. If you're in Christ, Jesus already dwells within you. But here's the point of the Ephesian letter. Christ wants to make your heart his home. He already dwells in you if you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. But we can be too content with that. Paul, in his prayers, as we're going to see today, is urging everyone who's in Christ, he's urging Christians to say, let him really build up his home in you. Let him fill you with his, his hope and a sense of his power, his true riches, and you'll see that in the prayers coming through. He's saying go from just knowing and knowing about and being even content with that to knowing and experiencing more of him. Well, we'll look to the first prayer to see, to see glimpses of this. Now, when I go to God in prayer, and I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I will admit to you that my prayers many times resemble a grocery list. You know what I mean by that? Kind of my wants. And sometimes I'm confusing my needs with wants. What I want isn't really a need, but it's a want, and, and it's all jumbled. I want you to see in the prayers of the Apostle Paul that the focus isn't simply for, uh, for wants. It's, it's, it's for true needs, and it's for greater things even than felt needs. If you go back to chapter 1, and I think it picks up at about verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this, chapter 1, verse 15. This is the first prayer in the book of Ephesians. For this reason, I too have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. He says, for this reason, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the substance of what he prays for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, He's very Trinitarian here. He's identifying Jesus. Then he says, the Father of glory may give to you 
a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, I want you to know him better. You already know him. You're saved. You're believers. You're followers. But I'm praying that he will give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes, verse 18, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Oh, dear friend, you know something? Can I say this? And and hopefully you'll interpret it right. You, if you're a Christian, you are richer than you think. I'm not talking about the size of your bank account. But you are way richer than you realize if you're in Christ. The hope of your calling is so, is so incredibly huge. Your calling, your high calling in Jesus Christ. Look what he's writing about. Verse 19, he's talking about the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Remember, God isn't against you. God is for you. Remember, Jesus said in, in, in the book of John, John 14, he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. He's been, he's been preparing a home for you in heaven for 2,000 years. Remember, he's redeemed you for the future. Remember, this life isn't all there is. Oh, but it's all we see, so it's all we tend to live for. This is act one of a two-act play. Act one is life on earth, and it concludes at our death, which could come today. It will come at some point, and it's over. And then act two begins, and it never ends. Act two is forever. I said at this funeral service yesterday to the dear people gathered there, I said, you know, personally, I said, I I could suggest to you that this life, I could tell you what this life is about in three words, prepare for eternity. I said, I know we do a lot of things in this life. We work, we provide, we have relationships with with friends. We do wonderful things. We love this life. It's a gift. But this life isn't all there is. And we know that, right? Obviously, we know that. This life is meant for us to be a stewardship of preparation for the big, the big stage, the big life to come where we're with the king forever and ever, amen, and all of his people. But I'm so earthbound as a human being, it's hard for me to think about that, to even desire to think about that at times. But the word of God beckons me to remember the big picture of life, that the things that I see are temporal and the things that are unseen are eternal. Let these words of the apostle Paul grip you he says, I'm praying that you will have eyes that, of, of your heart that are enlightened. I want you to see what life's really about. Let's continue on in this first prayer. He, he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He's saying, look what God has done in his power. He has sent his son to this earth. He's allowed him to become a savior for all of our sins. He's raised him from, the, from, the, from death, and he has ascended him. He's seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body or his family, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What can you learn from listening to somebody's prayers? You can learn a lot, especially if the person praying is an apostle. <laughs> you can learn a lot from listening to a prayer. That's why I want you now to, to forward to chapter 3 and to look with me at uh, 
the second prayer in the book of Ephesians, which begins at verse 14, which is the main text that I wish to look at with you today. And this dear, dear friend, I call him a friend, I never knew Paul, of course, because we lived two millennia apart. He gets away with a lot of things my English teachers never let me get away with. Things we call run-on sentences. He digresses. He goes all over the place. But I guess when you're writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you can just do what you want, and it's right. It's perfect. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember, look with me back at that text. Remember what he said? We looked at this a week or so ago. He goes, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. One verse, he starts a thought, for this reason, and we talked about what that reason was. It was a great cause, the cause which was illuminated in chapter 2, the cause of the gospel, the cause of Christ, bringing all people on the earth together in Christ, Jew and Gentile. All people who believe in Jesus Christ are one people. There's a, a unity there. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he goes, okay, for, go on, and then he digresses at verse 2, and he goes on, and he goes on, and he goes on, and we made a whole message about it last week, everything he digressed on. Then you jump down to verse 14, and he picks up where he left off at verse 1. <laughs> That's a run-on sentence. He can get away with it. He did. Here it is. So verse 14, you could go literally from 1 to 14 to get the continuity of where he's going. That doesn't dismiss the importance of what he said in verses 2 through 13, not at all, because it's all Scripture. It's all under inspiration of the Spirit. I'm just making kind of a sidebar comment. But, and I, but I want you to see the flow of thought as he writes. So verse 1 says, for this reason. Now look at verse 14. He says it again. He's follow, his line of thought, he says, oh, now let me get back to where I was. For this reason, I bow my knees. It's identifying prayer, a posture of prayer. Some commentators will take that literally, saying he literally was bowing. I don't think you can interpret it that way. I don't think he's, he's necessarily stating you need to do that or that, that's in fact what he's doing. You can certainly bow in prayer. I think it's, it's implying that he's in prayer. Whether or not he's literally bowing, I don't know. But a good friend of mine, a, a youth pastor from years ago, I loved one of the things he used to say in prayer. He would always say, Lord, we bow in our hearts to you. Whenever he said that, it just stirred something good in my head that whenever I pray, I should have that mindset that I'm bowing in my spirit to God. Because you know something? A person could bow physically without bowing in their heart, couldn't they? A person could still be kind of stiff and resistant to God, could have a posture of prayer without really even meaning it. But I want you to see in the case of the Apostle Paul, don't get caught up on a posture as much as an attitude. That's what he's talking about. The, the New Testament, along with the Old Testament, shows us lots of different ways people prayed. People pray standing up. People can pray prostrate. People can pray kneeling. Stephen was in prayer on his knees as he was being martyred for his faith, Acts chapter 6 and 7. So the key thing here, though, isn't, isn't the posture outwardly as much as the posture or attitude of the heart when we pray. What's the posture of the heart? Paul says, for, for the reason of the gospel, for the greatness of Christ's cause, for, for, because I'm his servant, for this reason, I bow. I bow my knees. He's really bowing in his heart, ultimately. That's the ultimate bow, right? Before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's not speaking there, let me suggest to you, in verse 15, of the universal fatherhood of God and, and the sonship of, of, of humanity. But he's talking about God's heavenly family that's already gone on to heaven, the church triumphant, the saints that have gone on before us. 
that are called God's family and those that are here below, those, those of us who are still alive, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So you have the church triumphant and you have the church on earth, the church in heaven and the church here. He's saying, I bow my knees before him, the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, do you see grocery list kind of praying there? I don't. He's not praying for really their comforts, is he? He's not praying for their wishes. He's praying for their spiritual welfare. If you say to me, I don't know really what I should pray for people. Well, here's an example of one way to pray for people. Pray for their spiritual life. Pray for their spiritual development. He says, I'm praying that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, he already lives there, Paul would say, but I want him to be stronger in your life. I want you to experience him in a way that is beyond knowing about his power, but experiencing that in your daily living. I want him to, to live his life out through you, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, the supreme Christian virtue, I want you to grow in love, that, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's kind of a spiritual oxymoron, isn't it? You know, an oxymoron is, is like a contradiction. The, the cloudless, cloudy sky, you know, that's, that's like a contradiction. Paul is saying, oh, I want you to comprehend the love that's beyond comprehension. <laughs> but again, he can say that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying the love of Christ is so unsearchable, but I want you to know as much of it as you can possibly handle. <laughs> it is so incredible, you'll never understand it all. But I want you to experience as much of it as you can humanly handle. It is so incredible. It is so immeasurably great. I want you to go further in it than you ever knew you could. But you'll never, you'll never exhaust it. That's what he's saying. Is that big? Is that rich? Verse 18 I want you to have this, I pray that you'll have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. In other words, it's beyond compare. It's infinite, the love of God, the love for you that God has for you and the love he wants to work through you. He says, you've only begun to see it, but I want it to become unleashed in you and you'll never understand it all and you'll, you'll, you'll never reach the end of it. It surpasses knowledge, he says in verse 19 that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, quite literally, be careful again how you interpret that. No human being could be literally contain the fullness of God, right? Unless you're Jesus of Nazareth. You and I could not contain the justice and the mercy or the, the fullness, the, the might of God. We couldn't do that. So what is he saying? He's saying, I want you to experience as much of God as you can while still being human. That's quite a bit of God. I want you to know as much of his mercy, as much of his love, as much of his joy, the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to know as much of him as, as you can while still being human. That's incredible. Is there room to grow in your life and mine? <laughs> I got a lot of room to grow here. But that's his prayer for us. He's saying, I'm, wanna, I'm praying that you just grow richer and deeper in experiencing your great God. So it was Stott who said, the indispensable prelude to all petition or prayer is the revelation of God's will. 
We have no authority to pray for anything which God has not revealed to be his will. That is why Bible reading and prayer should always go together. His point is, is simple. It, it, is, it is important that we look at Scripture to know how to pray. Not just the prayers of Scripture, but all of Scripture. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. That's quite a statement. I won't be praying mistaken prayers if I'm praying God's word. I'll be praying things that matter to the king, the things that are already on his heart. If I'm looking at his word, if I know what's on his heart, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. We read his word, we understand his heart, and we pray those things. And he says, I'm going to move on those things. You're praying for what's on my heart. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 We've begun to look at, we've also begun to look at the benediction, if you will. Uh, actually, we haven't. I want to do that with you right now. Look at verse 20 with me in Ephesians 3. This is a benediction, or you could call it, maybe it's better called a doxology in chapter 3. It's the way this prayer ends. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power, the word there is dunamis in Greek, and we get our word dynamite from that. According to the dunamis at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying there is a measurable power that God has. It's infinite. And everything that we are, everything that we're becoming that is good, comes from him. Eternity will be fueled by God's strength. Our lives are completely at his whim and mercy. Every breath we take is from him. And so look at, look at what he says. He who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we're even praying about, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory. Since every good thing comes from God, all the glory needs to go to God. Every good thing that God does in your life, from redeeming you, to answering your prayers, to creating a home in heaven for you, to giving you spiritual gifts to serve him with, to, to every good thing he's done for you and will do for you, from all of that, he deserves all the glory. And that's true of the church. Every good thing this church has ever accomplished does not give man glory, it gives God glory. It's only fitting. We don't get to take the glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. When we are united there's a power at work within the church and within us as individuals that is past imagining. Past imagining. It is the power of the resurrection that raised Christ from death. Is that a great power? It's a great power that can raise somebody from death to life. It's a great power. It is a power that enthroned Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. Think of it. The power that Jesus came to this earth with and was incarnated with the immaculate conception of our lord and then he grew to manhood and did all these great wonderful miracles and raised people like lazarus from from death and then he laid down his own life was crucified and raised was raised from death and then he was ascended and went back to heaven and he's enthroned in the heavenlies that power is alive in you in me to all who are in christ and that power has enthroned us there with him, Ephesians says. The Bible in Ephesians says that you and I already are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What does that mean? I can interpret it briefly, but it says that you have one foot in eternity already if you're in Christ. 
God has already sealed you with his Holy Spirit. He's created a home for you in heaven, and he wants you to be be getting ready for your home, your eternal home, and he wants you to serve him well here and get ready for that home. It means that you already have a power that you can help others lay a hold of. Is that big? It's very big. It's really big. There's power, friends, when we pray. And so we come humbly. Let's go back to verse 14. When we pray, how should we pray? We look at the pattern of the Apostle Paul here. Well, we want to come with an attitude of humility. I don't want to come to God in prayer with an entitlement attitude, like, God, I'm sure doing you a big favor because I'm praying today. Aren't you impressed? I'm a busy guy, you know. I'm taking time to come to you. You should be impressed. Now, I'm sure none of us would come to God that way, right? Maybe in our heart we would. We shouldn't do that. A wise pastor told me a long time ago, he said, think about this. Never ask God for what you deserve. You wouldn't want it. You would not want it. You wouldn't want justice. You wouldn't want what you, what you really deserve. God doesn't give you, thankfully, what you deserve. He gives you his mercy. We need to come humbly. Paul was humble. He knew who he was. He knew he was a wretch apart from the grace and mercy of God. For this reason... For the grace of God, the majesty of the King. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We come humbly, and we come in prayer, seeking God's agenda. As you look at the prayer then, as we move on in these verses, you see that the Apostle Paul's agenda isn't to pray for really their comforts for the Ephesians. I put the question there, holy or happy? Is he praying for their happiness? Oh, I just pray that you'll be happy people. I pray nobody will ever insult you. I pray you'll have a good, happy life and die fat, whatever, and full and happy. He doesn't pray that. In fact, in the Bible, you won't find really, you might find allusions to happiness, but not prayers for happiness. But you will find direction to pray for holiness. Now, let me tell you something if you've never seen this before. If you seek holiness in your life, you get happiness thrown in. You really do. If you seek God's will in your life, you don't miss happiness. You miss happiness when you, when you try to find that instead of holiness. But when God is doing something maybe hard in your life, pruning your life, and you're very unhappy about it, when life's not going easily, when life is a, is a stretch, it's a challenge, I want to run from those moments personally. But that's often when God's doing his best work in me. And he's making me a little more like him. He's making me a little softer. He's making me a little more patient, a little wiser, a little truer, a little deeper. And so I need to hold on and, 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 and suck it up, if you will, spiritually, and hang in there. And if I do, I grow and I become happy. And so our, our, our culture says, no, just live to be happy. And the Bible says, no, live to be holy, and you will be happy. Let God grow you in the hard times, and you get happiness thrown in. You really do. God's agenda God wants you to grasp the vastness of the love of Christ and be transformed by his unlimited power into the likeness of Christ. That's the the nuts and bolts of this part of Ephesians 3, verses 14 through, through the rest of the chapter. That's what Paul's praying for. This is the agenda, if you will, of the apostle Paul, but it's really God's agenda. He says, I pray that you would be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. How much power does God have? It's unlimited. He says, I'm praying that the God of unlimited power will unleash more of that power in you 
so that Christ will dwell in your heart through faith, that you will keep walking by faith, and that you will be rooted and grounded in love, that you will know his love in your life. And when you know that more deeply, you serve out of that love more freely. Isn't that true? If you feel loved, if you feel at peace, you give love. You show peace. If you don't feel loved, if you don't feel cared for, if you don't feel at peace, if you're not experiencing some of those good things that God wants to build up in your life, you probably don't share those things as easily. And so Paul, Paul's praying. He says, I want you to experience these good things in your inner being. That's how we need to be praying for one another. Just really praying those rich kind of prayers. Praying for, for one another to not just have an easier life, to have a richer life with Jesus. A deeper life with him. Knowing his, the true riches that we have. Knowing his true love. That we're strengthened. That, and, and that we're comprehending with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of his love that surpasses knowledge. And then we'll have the motivation to serve in love. And all of this transformation into this greater Christ-likeness, friends, doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit. I say that on the authority of this passage. It's the Holy Spirit that does this work, right? We don't make it happen. But we do have a role to play. It won't happen without my involvement. I can't just grow up in my Christian life without any involvement, right? Nor can you. Even coming to church, you're not going to grow up just by osmosis, right? Where you just hear these things, and all of a sudden, ta-da, you become a mature Christian. And you're just full of grace and truth, and you're just like Jesus. And you're serving, and you're full of forgiveness and patience, and you've just grown up. Wow. We know better than that. Even on a human level, our children don't grow up into young adults without going through a lot of difficulty. There's, there's tooth pain, and there's bumps and bruises, and there's all kinds of growing pains, and they become adults and stronger for what they've gone through. As tough as it is to watch them struggle through that. So, so you've got to participate. You've got to give yourself to studying the Word and, and, and being in, in small groups, just growing up in faith, doing the, the spiritual disciplines. It also won't happen in isolation. Spiritual transformation will not happen in a vacuum. Pity the Christian that is isolated this morning, that says, I'm not going to church because I'm mad at God. I'm disinterested in those things. The church is so far from perfect, and that's true. It's very imperfect here. If you sit, sit around here long enough, you'll see plenty of warts, believe me, on me and others. But despite all of that, God is still at work in our midst. And if we separate ourselves from the body of Christ, and we can even do that while we're going to church, we can be really distant and isolated and secluded. And if we live in that kind of an environment, we are not going to grow up. Because look at the doxology here. Now to him, verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Look at the language, it's plural. We, it's community here, according to the power at work within us, the church, to him be glory in the what? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We grow up in faith in the community. We do not grow up in isolation. Don't become an isolated Lone Ranger Christian. You will not grow up. You'll be stuck. You will not be happy. You'll be discouraged. You belong in the body. Serving, being prayed for, praying for others, being a, being a part of the family. We are members of one another. So said the Apostle Paul. You belong. So together, let's give God the glory that is his. And that's Paul's doxology. And I'll offer you one more as my closer this morning from the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Father, thank you for the high calling in Christ Jesus to, while we live on this earth, to not live for it exclusively, but to live for you. Lord, energize us afresh with the power, the unlimited power from on high today to live for Christ, to live in him, for him to dwell in us in a significant way, that his joy and his hope just overflows us. Oh God, we just need that. We need you today. We need you every day. We come humbly and we say, help us grow. Help us live in your hope. Help us live in the joy of our faith. Help us help each other live in the joy of faith and support each other and show us where we can grow and where we have to give up some things, Lord, that might be keeping us from growing. Change us, Lord God, more and more into the likeness of our precious Savior. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thank you so much for being with us this morning.